coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. And so I was getting really immersed in the day-to-day minutiae of the frustrations and the difficulties people were having in the world of work itself. And that's where slow productivity emerged. And it hit such a chord. I mean, that was the, it's such an acute issue that people are having right now. They're burnt out, but they don't know why and they don't know what work should be. That what I actually did is I, I changed my plans and I, you know, I told my agent, wait, instead of just pitching the deep life, I want to pitch slow productivity, uh, a new book, slow productivity. Let's write that now. Let's write that first and then write the deep life because the deep life as a topic is not going anywhere. I mean, that gets to the core existential crisis of, of living, whereas slow productivity was very much of this moment. I'm Cal Newport, author of Deep Work and host of the Deep Questions podcast. And this is my episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings. Today we spoke with Cal Newport, Associate Professor at Georgetown University and author of Deep Work. Cal is an Associate Professor of Computer Science who earned his PhD from MIT. His writing unpacks topics such as culture, technology, and productivity. Cal has published several groundbreaking books, including Deep Work, Digital Minimalism, and A World Without Email. He writes regularly for The New Yorker, The New York Times, and Wired on topics such as his views on Twitter, slow productivity, virtual reality in the workplace, teenagers using social media, and so forth. We would highly recommend his Study Hacks blog and his influential podcast, Deep Questions, where Cal roots a lot of his attention on helping us navigate an increasingly distracted world, how we can retain and optimize our focus, and how to live deeper. Today we spoke about our fixation on social media, why Cal reads over scrolling, and his ideal working environment for writing and working, his mind gym office at home. Cal discusses his upcoming new book, how he wrote his first book, and how he balances being a professor and writer with family life and pull-ups every day. There's a fascinating dive into AI and VR, and what could happen in relation to technology moving forward. Cal also talks about time blocking, reclaiming our attention and deep work, echoes of our recent chat with Anne Lohr. Cal Newport, thanks very much for joining us. How are you today, sir? Uh, I'm doing well. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, as we we're just talking about before we started recording here, I was late because I'm having a, a gas fireplace installed in my house because I am trying to build a sort of writer's sanctuary, some sort of romantic room full of built-in bookcases and a crackling fire. So you know how it is with me. I'm, I'm always searching <laughs> for more depth. Where did the inspiration come or how did you, you know, fireplace books, risk of lots of stuff happening? <laughs> where, where did the idea come? Well, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with from just a hobby or, or a side interest is I really love looking up where authors I admire or famous authors, how and where they work or how and where they work with their historical figures. And, and one of the things that comes up, if you look into this, is 
a lot of famous writers put a lot of thought into environment, which kind of makes sense, right? We don't think about it so much when it comes to the brain, but if we're thinking about a famous athlete, for example, if a famous athlete had a really nice home gym, like that makes complete sense, right? Like you, you, your body is how you make your living. You really care about being in shape or if a movie star, like an action star has a really big gym, it makes sense. But writers are using their brain to produce value. It's their number one asset. So this idea that they might invest in their environment to try to get more out of their brain though we don't think about it naturally actually makes a lot of sense. So I'm, I'm replicating some of what I've seen and I'm trying to take this room in our house and uh, surrounding it with bookcases, all built in bookcases all the way around. Uh, I'm having a desk made by a, a company in Maine that specializes in building desks for college libraries. And, you know, I've been in academia my entire adult life. So I was like, this is, this is fantastic. So I'm just custom built <laughs> college library desk. Uh, and then there's going to be, uh, we have like an old Chesterfield leather couch by a, a crackling fire. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, this is like the action star building the home gym. This is Chris Pratt deciding he's going to invest in, you know, having a lot of kettlebells at home, but you know what it paid off for him. So I'm, I'm hoping I get a, a similar benefit. You used to speak about going to coffee shops in the morning. And that was pretty much your ideal morning was going to a coffee shop, writing, having a lot of caffeine, moving on to a different one, bit of walking. Do you, how do you think that's going to measure up now that you'll be in your home office solely writing? Yeah, well, let me say for the, for the viewing audience, I'm, I'm holding up a cup of coffee <laughs> from my local coffee shop, which I did walk, walk to this morning. Uh, I am peripatetic with my writing. So even with the study, I, I walk to think. Uh, I write at coffee shops a lot. It's just a change of pace. So maybe I'll write in my office for a while then switch to the coffee shop. That's pretty common. When I'm really trying to break something, I'll go to the woods. I find if you had to actually drive for a while to get to a trailhead, your brain's going to be more committed. It's going to say, look, we've gone through a lot of trouble here. So I think we've, we really should concentrate on this idea that we're trying to crack. You bring a notebook, no electrical devices, notebook into the woods. You can actually get some of your best notes that way. So I'll, I'll still be, I'll still be all over the place once I, once I have my study, but, but really what happened is I, I had a nice office and then this pandemic hit and there was a, a year where the local schools closed for the whole year. And so we, we were homeschooling our kids and they took over the office. So I lost it. And I, and, and, and it, the whole thing was in disarray. It's whiteboards and kids craft supplies. <laughs> and, and so my thought was, well, why don't we build back better? Right. So that's, that's, what's going on here. It's like, I don't want to just get back to the way it was before. I'm going to make it, make it over the top. So we subscribed to your podcast and we were checking it out there a while ago and deep questions and you're writing a new book. We had an inkling. Yeah. The two of us were saying there's something brewing over in that <laughs> world. But for those that maybe aren't quite um, understanding as to what's going on, what's, what's coming up, what's the big one coming up. So the next book is going to be slow productivity. And here's the, the, the current working subtitle is on the lost art of accomplishment without burnout. And I'm rethinking, I'm trying to rethink productivity, especially when it comes to the product of the mind, you're creating things, you're writing things, you're, you're running your own business. I don't think we have a really useful or tested definition of what we mean by productivity right now. We borrow ideas from the past. We, we roughly borrow ideas from industrial productivity, for example, when trying to figure out what does it mean 
Uh, we focus on hustle and busyness and, mm. and having our options opening and crushing it and getting after it. But we don't really have a very sophisticated idea of actually what is a, what is a really sustainable human notion of productivity. If your goal is to produce stuff that matters and do so in a way that makes life satisfying. And so I am proposing an answer to that question. And so it's this idea of slow productivity, which I've been trickling out. Mm. So I wrote a New Yorker piece yeah. on this. I went on Tim Ferriss's podcast a little while ago and talked about this with him. So I'm slowly starting to trickle out some of these ideas, but I'm up to my ears now in getting it into the uh, final form, into a book, the sort of definitive word on what slow productivity is, why we need it, and how exactly you inject it into your life. So I'm interested as well about, you seem to be very timely with your book releases and you often attribute to luck nearly given a pandemic, given the focus on people losing control of boundaries and burnout becoming a major factor, how do you think you've landed on this almost at the right time and it's all percolating? What does it feel like if you're going forward at this moment? How do you think the, the reaction will be to a book like this? Well, in this case, the timing's not, it's not accidental. So, so if you want to get a peek behind the sort of authorly curtain, the, the book idea I really started working on seriously during that sort of early acute stage of the pandemic was a book called The Deep Life. And th yes. this was a notion I introduced on my podcast early on and in my writing. And I really began to resonate with my readers. It became a, an umbrella for a lot of the things I talk about, how to build a life that itself is deep and meaningful. And the deep life is something you know it when you see it, but we don't really step back and ask mechanistically, how do you actually get there? We just sort of admire it when we see a documentary or come across a profile. So that's what I was working on. Because that was spurred by the pandemic was obviously disrupting a lot of people and leading a lot of people to say, I want to do something different. And then they were getting stuck with how do I do something different? So I was, I was working on that book. Um, but then in the fall, last fall, I began writing a twice a month column for the New Yorker. I said for the, the fall and that winter, I was going to write a twice a month column all about what's happening in the world of work, because that's when people were rethinking work, returning to work, the pandemic had caused these disruptions. And so I was getting really immersed in the day-to-day -day minutia of the frustrations and the difficulties people were having in the world of work itself. And that's where slow productivity emerged. And it hit such a chord. I mean, that was, the, it's such an acute issue that people are having right now. They're burnt mm -hmm. out, but they don't know why. And they don't know what work should be that what I actually did is I, I changed my plans. And I, you know, I told my agent, wait, instead of just pitching the deep life, I want to pitch slow productivity, uh, a new book, slow productivity. Let's write that now. Let's write that first and then write the deep life because the deep life as a topic is not going anywhere. I mean, that gets to the core existential crisis of, of living, whereas slow productivity was very much of this moment. So it actually was in response to exactly what I was picking up when I was studying these questions. Looking forward to it, yeah. What does your typical week look like? I mean, we're we're probably going to get into the tech and the social media and potentially why that's not something, you know, the minimalization piece, of course, and you've, you've touched on the importance of leisure, but here's, here's a man who professor, you know, lecturing, then you're also writing books. You're, you're building out your office. You're, you've got a family to look after. So how do you manage to align all these, these key elements that obviously fill, fill up your cup? Well, there's different, seasons of my life, which are relevant, different seasons of the year that are relevant because I'm a professor. So let's take right now, for example, uh, it's, it's summertime. I'm a professor in summertime. So I'm, I'm in my, what I would call my writing mode. 
uh, I also have bought out of my courses for the fall. So I'm not teaching again until 2023. So I'm writing from now through the new year. So when I'm in my writing mode, uh, my schedule's really clear. First thing in the morning is my writing. So I write every single morning with the exception of Saturdays. So Monday through Friday and Sunday, I write every morning. Uh, during the school year for my kids, like it's still their school year now, I, I walk my kids to the bus stop, come home from that. I have a, a pull-up routine I do. It's not, it takes five minutes, but it's, it's something like 33 or 34 pull-ups. I did the math at some point of how many pull-ups gets you to a thousand per month. So I do that to just activate, right? Mm-hmm. And then sit down and write. And then once they're not, no longer in school, I just start to writing even, start to writing even earlier. So I write until I'm done, which could be, I mean, today we're recording this local time, 11 a.m. I, I might go finish the thought I was working on, but 11 a.m. would be a perfectly reasonable time to finish writing. Sometimes it's like noon, but just write every day, let that build up. The afternoon uh, until roughly like happy hour time is, okay, what else? You know, emails I have to answer, meetings I have to do, errands I have to run. Uh, then I try around happy hour time. That's when I exercise and that's my transition to family. And so that's what I do during this time. Now I have, of course, like this whole podcast video type of world I do, but I have a very clear rule for that one half day per week. That is my fixed schedule for working on my podcast, my studio, my videos, one half day per week. That's all the time I get to spend on it. Now I'm relentless during that time to keep trying to grow and expand. But basically what happens is we'll be working on something, me and my producer, and until we kind of figure it out and that becomes automatic, that frees up more time in that weekly half day. So we can start working on something new. So it's maybe a slower pace that some of this uh, stuff I'm working on in audio and video is developing, but its footprint is, is constrained. If I'm in an academic semester, where I have to lecture and do other things. Uh, typically then the writing gets greatly reduced. Um, the podcasting stays in its half day. And, and so, but that's the typical thing. So right now I'm in my writing mode, which honestly is my favorite mode. And I'm thinking back to how to win a college, your first book. Um, when you were writing that, you probably didn't have the processes and understanding of yourself, your self-awareness at such a high level that you knew exactly what emotional resources, what time resources you should dedicate to your writing. I'm wondering, how did you find the courage to put that as a primary uh, factor for yourself in your life that I'm not going to focus on my studies. I'm going to do it something else a bit outside of it that does give me energy, but also can take away from study time and things that may in the conceptual world and the normal view of other people be more important? Well, I can remember uh, exactly how I wrote How to Win at College. If anything, the format of that book was in some sense working backwards to how I was going to write it. So that book is short chapters. They're Hmm. two to five pages long. Each one is, has a contrarian pithy title, right? So it'd say, don't do all your reading. And then there'd be a few pages and then it would be whatever, uh, don't make your bed or something like this. And which, which I, by the way, did have a chapter called make your bed before, uh, that Admiral wrote the book, make your bed more recently, (laughs) a massive bestseller. Um, so the way I would write that book, I wrote that during my senior year, uh, at, at college. And the way I wrote it is I could, I could get a draft of one of those chapters done in one sitting right? Because it's like five pages. It was like perfectly suited for 60 to 90 minutes. I would wake up early. I, I still remember the, the room. It was like in a rental house with some buddies. Wake up early, had a desk in the room. And by early, I mean early by university standards. We're not talking 5 a.m. Like we're talking 9 a.m. 9 a.m. Right? But I would wake up and I would write and then, and then be done while everyone else was still sleeping. And I was like, I just did that every morning. 
And by Christmas time, I had a book. And, and so, you know, I had worked that back. And, and the way I got the courage to write that, that book, I mean, the brief backstory on that is uh, I was a writer in college. I was the editor of the humor magazine. I was a columnist for the newspaper. So I, I kind of knew my way around a sentence at that point. I had been an entrepreneur in high school. I had run a, a short-lived tech company. So as a teenager, I was reading lots of advice books, lots of business books, lots of business self-help books. So I knew that genre very well. And, and I had that entrepreneurial mindset. So I, I got this idea at some point in college that someone should write a student advice book with the same tone and directness as a business advice book. Mm -hmm. where you're like, just no nonsense. You want to get good grades. Here's what you should do because it's not the way people were writing college books back then. And I was living in New York for a semester and an entrepreneur friend of mine basically just dared me. So I stopped talking about this idea. If it's a good idea, just go do it. And I was like, all right, I'll take that bait. <laughs> you know, let me just do it. <laughs> and and uh, it, to me, it was an entrepreneurial move. I was I was always hustling in college. I mean, you know, I was writing, um, but I was also working as a consultant. I'd worked for tech companies. I was doing computer programming. I was being, I was flying back and forth to work on uh, some machinery. I'd programmed a custom microcontroller for an optical device company. Like I was always hustling and making money. So it was like one other entrepreneurial venture among others. Like, great. How am I going to write this? Let's make the chapter short, one chapter a morning, uh, you know, four months later, there's the book. So that, that's how that, that all got started. When people look you up, Cal, a lot of people obviously, they see a lot, a lot and they learn a lot and deep work does jump out, right? And, you know, it's, it's been there, but um, a lot of people are always asking, what is it about? How can we avoid distraction? And it's, it's such a thing in our world in well-being when we're, when we're working with people and they've just got so much going on flooded with so many thoughts that how on earth can they complete the task at hand? You're the man who's wrote the book. We'd love to just get your understanding as to maybe those core principles for those people that still are struggling to understand the importance. And maybe it is batching or it is just monotasking or it is just creating the environment. But from you, what would be the, I suppose, the key principles to help, to help guide those people? Well, so at this point, I've really written three books looking at related topics to this. And, and one of the core distinctions that came out of my work, which is often overlooked, is that we, we really have to separate distraction in the world of work from distraction in your, your life outside of work. They feel very similar. It's all coming out of screens. It's all kind of shiny. It's all sort of compulsive. You're on your phone, but there's actually very different mechanisms underneath it. And therefore the, the cures are very different. So I'm going to put aside briefly distraction in your life outside of work. So I'm talking social media, I'm talking online news. Let's put that aside for a second. We can talk about that because I've obviously wrote a whole book on that. But let's talk about the workplace, this idea in the workplace, this problem I first pointed out in deep work that our time is super fragmented, that we're jumping back and forth between 70 emails and Slack and Zoom and working a little bit on this project, a little bit of that, and never really making progress on anything. And, and I really think there's two big culprits there that can be addressed. The first is how we collaborate. So, I mean, this is really what I get into in, in my most recent book, A World Without Email, is that in the age of networked knowledge work, there is a emergent form of collaboration that I call the hyperactive hive mind that came to dominate. And the idea is now that we have these super low friction ways of communicating like email and Slack, let's just figure everything out on the fly. 
back and forth unscheduled ad hoc messages. It's very flexible. It's very simple. It's very cheap to implement. All you need is an email server or a Google Workplace account. Let's just do that. We'll just figure things out on the fly with ad hoc back and forth messages. This turned out to be a disaster because it doesn't scale. Once you're working with a lot of people on a lot of different projects, and each of those projects has its own asynchronous back and forth conversation going on, you're suddenly involved in dozens of back and forth conversations. You hmm. can't batch too much. You can't spend too much time avoiding your inbox because if you take three hours away from it, there's a dozen conversations that are waiting for you to respond to move forward. And if those conversations can't move forward, things don't get done. You know, if we have to do 10 back and forth messages to figure out uh, when we're going to pick up the client tomorrow, if we need 10 back and forth messages to figure that out, I can't delay the second message for five hours because we're not going to get through all 10 messages in time to actually get there. And so the impact of the hyperactive hive mind is that we had to check inboxes and channels all the time, not because we're lazy or because we have bad inbox habits, but because this method of collaboration actually demands it. And then the second culprit, I think, in, in overwhelm and distraction in work is we do too many things. We put too many things on our plate because we don't have any systematic way of asking the question, what is a reasonable workload? What is your current workload? Oh, you're here. We're not going to put anything else on your plate. We do not do that. We just have a push system where anything can push some, something on anyone else's plate at any time. And once we fill up what's on our plate to a certain point, all sorts of chaos happens. We, we fall into something that I sometimes call an overhead spiral, where each of these different things on your plate has its own demands of maintenance activity, uh, emails and meetings to check in on things that they require. And over time, the maintenance activities takes over your whole schedule. And you find yourself doing nothing but Zooms and emails not getting work done. It's this real frenetic existence. So those are the two things, haphazard cl uh, collaboration and having too many things on our plate. That's what leads to this frazzled sense of we're never actually making progress on things that happen. We're constantly distracted. We're constantly exhausted. Building on that, we're nodding so much because we're experiencing <laughs> Zoom pandemic. We've seen a huge influx of meetings, video calls that we had to attend that were always half an hour to an hour plugged in, not 15, not 17 minutes, always extra time that may not be needed. As we move towards a world where maybe we're using Oculus devices, we're using virtual reality to meet, do you think that's going to increase the demands on individuals to join these video calls, to get involved with people remotely? And will that have a substantive effect on burnout and demands for an individual, whether they are remote, hybrid, or in the office? I, mean, I think the intersection of virtual reality and collaboration is interesting. I, I went down this rabbit hole last fall because I, I wrote a New Yorker essay hmm. about exactly this topic. So about virtual reality, productivity, and work. And the, the storyline I picked up there is actually kind of interesting. There was a big push for virtual reality collaboration. This was everyone's instinct is, oh, this is why this is going to be useful is that if we're remote, we can still work together and have more of a sense of presence. We can, we can gain back a lot of what's lost by not being in person. But it turns mm. out the number one productivity app in the Oculus store focuses not on collaboration, but on individuals being more productive with their solo work. And this actually seems like this is going to be the sweet spot for productivity. So this app, which was called Immerse, which I, I actually wrote some of my article in, mm. I wrote some of the article on a, a chalet uh, overlooking uh, rain-swept mountain with wow. fire pits all around. Um, it works. So that it, it works. I mean, I had some, there's some issues. Uh, there's some technical, it's very, here's the complicated thing about working in virtual reality, keyboards. 
and there's a lot of technology that goes into how do you write when you have the goggles <laughs> on. Uh, and I'll tell you, Oculus says they have these forward-facing cameras, and they can learn. It's getting better. They can they can watch your fingers, oh. and they they can bring. It's not great yet, but they're getting closer. They can bring a virtual keyboard into the world, and your fingers are in the world where they actually are uh, at your actual keyboard, so you can see your fingers virtually. So they're 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 getting there. Uh, but what they found was here was their entry into into productivity with virtual reality was screens. So this app immersed. They said, well, how can we how can we actually make your work life easier than it is without the helmet on? This was the problem with collaborations. No one wants to put on the helmet and log into a thing when they could just jump into Zoom. So the, the, their wedge into the world of work was you can have multiple screens in virtual reality. Hmm. And it works really well. You can have up to five giant monitors in these virtual worlds. And the resolution is such that it literally does seem like these monitors are full resolution, large size. Uh, in your actual world. And so it this was making work better, especially for programmers and developers who like to have multi-screen setups. They could be on the road and put on their Oculus headset or in their apartment, not at their office, and have a better monitor setup than is possible in the real office. Uh, so that actually seems to be the, the place where VR is intersecting with productivity is actually to help people work more productively even on their own. Yeah, it's, it, it may like, looking at that that can be the real the area for growth but maybe again learning on the fly with all the different approaches we get and the meetings we're called into i see a lot on them um, linkedin where people are doing example videos and they're in a boardroom and they're jumping in with the headsets and they're, they're spending so much time enjoying the environment that they're missing out even on time yeah but the, the number one so there's like a real big player in that space and they uh they pivoted to be an nft company earlier this year oh. because it, it, there wasn't a market for it Right. People say Zoom, Zoom is good enough. I mean, I don't want to put on the headset. Immersed idea is, okay, you, you, you help people do their own, like they're in there all the time anyways, because they can do their own work better. Then it's real easy to jump into collaboration. Hey, why not? I already have the headset on. Sure, I'll jump into a VR meeting. Uh, yeah, so, so it, is, it is an interesting world. I mean, the, the other thing that came out of that work, though, is like the real big intersection with these new technologies, the thing that's going to really change the work environment is less VR than it's going to be augmented reality. Oh, so yeah. this is where all of the big players are investing huge in augmented reality because we're, we're not too far from a future uh, in which you don't need to own personal or professional consumer electronics because you will be able to, the, the computation will happen in the cloud and the screens you need will be uh, added to your environment with augmented reality. Like, why would I buy an iMac when I just have my Apple augmented reality glasses and I can just make an iMac screen as big as I want, wherever I yeah. want, whenever I need it and work on it right there, the computation happening in the cloud. So it's constantly running whatever the latest version is of whatever. Why do I need an iPhone? When, if I wanna make a call, I can just drag and then I can just see my numbers and click and then that screen disappears. I don't need to carry a, a separate, I don't need to carry a separate iPhone. I don't need to buy uh, a TV. Why buy a TV? I can just stretch and make a giant screen on my wall that's in a fixed location that everyone in that room will see it in the same place. Uh, that's going to be the most disruptive change, I think, to, the, to our lives with technology in the, in the, let's say, 10-year future is consumer electronics as an industry is basically going to disappear. I mean, this is existential for Apple. They're investing a huge amount of money in AR, 
because once this technology transformation happens, no one cares about well-machined, beautiful looking devices because no one will buy any more devices. Mm. And so it would be the end of that trillion dollar a year company unless they can own that space. So they're, they're obviously spending real heavily on it. Amazing. Tom Cruise and Minority Reports yeah. where That's it. early yeah. they knew. You read a lot, right? Obviously, read an awful lot, a lot of books yes. and loads. Voracious <laughs> reader, we were saying that we have that in our notes. And obviously writing, New Yorker and all those bestsellers. What is it about the reading that, that helps? Is it that coupled with the insights in the world that help you generate these, these ideas that are groundbreaking, really insightful, really incisive? Where, where, does, where does it come from? And why is reading so yeah. important to you? Well, I mean, I think reading to the intellectual life is exercise to the physical life. It, mm -hmm. it is calisthenics for the brain. You have to sustain focus. If you're reading nonfiction, you're sustaining focus on the abstract, trying to build and hold in your, your working memory, various structures of ideas or theoretical concepts and make sense of them and hold different ideas into relation. That's the physical equivalent of doing pull-ups. You know, it's, it's intense, but it gives you uh, big results. Fiction reading does something similar for your sociality. It, you you uh, empathetically create these simulations of other people's minds in your brain and then relate to them. It brings you into the lives of other people and other experiences. I mean, this is one of the best activities we have for maintenance and growth when it comes to doing things with your brain. And so since my various jobs all depend on my brain, I take reading real seriously. So that's why my, my challenge is to read five books a month. And then on my podcast every month, I go through, yeah. you know, here's the, here's the five books I, I read last month. And to me, that's just a baseline for what I do for a living. I mean, if I'm not doing at least that, I would be way off my game. You know, that is how, that is how I keep my mind sharp. How would you bring that into your routine? We had Steve Magnus on a while back and we were, he was talking about that himself and Brian Schulberg growth growth equation as to how they just are regimented, military-esque. But how do you, four to five books? <laughs> we were decent, but we're two, not. Two, <laughs> three, I have two young kids. So <laughs> well. I know your kids. It's challenging <laughs> with sleep sometimes. So how, do, yeah. how does it, but that's an excuse. So what does it look like? What's the structure to get to that level? Yeah, well, first of all, Steve and Brad are great. I know them well. Uh, Steve knows a little something about discipline training if you look yes. at his, his running background he makes the rest of us uh <laughs> seem like wimps honestly and this isn't a flip answer but honestly a a big part of what makes it not so hard to read five books a month is the fact that um i don't use social media mm -hmm. and i know that sounds flip but actually my phone you know i have an iphone i have it here somewhere okay it's one of these old small iphones but it's a i call it a 2007 version iPhone. And what I mean by that is not the technology, but the usage pattern. So this is something I, uh, I wrote about in digital minimalism is that when Steve Jobs introduced the iPhone in 2007, it was really clearly being pitched as this is this great Swiss army knife that takes these things you're already doing, like making calls, uh, sending text messages, listening to music, looking up directions, and it, it does it really well with a beautiful interface. It takes the things you're already doing and just makes the experience much better. The iPhone that was pitched in 2007 was not meant to be something you looked at all the time. Mm. Uh, he didn't even talk about, I, I, go and, I used a stopwatch and went into this in his mm. opening keynote, at the Moscone Center, where he introduced the iPhone, that famous speech. It's something like 25 minutes into the speech before he even moves past the phone and music features of the iPhone. There was no app store back then. 
I talked to the lead designer of the iPhone who said Steve was really worried about other people's apps being on his beautiful platform and messing it up. Uh, so the iPhone was like, this is great. You listen to music. This is a better interface than the iPod. You make calls, visual voicemail. Like it's just, you can scroll through your contacts. It's just a better phone. Uh, you need directions, man. You can just look directions right up on the phone. That's how I use it. So there's nothing on here that, that uh, holds appeal for me in the moment. If I am bored because I don't have any social media accounts, there's nothing on this that offers me respite. And it really does make a difference to not have this default fallback behavior of how to satiate boredom. Uh, you don't have that default fallback. Writing, uh, reading becomes a reasonable alternative. So it's just something you turn to. Like I'm up early. I'll read while I wait for the kids to get up. I'm eating lunch. I'm bored. I don't have anything to look at on here. I mean, I already know what the weather is. So I'll read, you know. Uh, oh, I have a little bit of extra time because like, you know, my wife has the kids at whatever and they're not back yet. And my thing ended early. Reading actually is a very natural default activity. It used to be a default activity for a lot of us. The phone took that away. So if you go back to 2007 mode in your phone, you have a lot more time. I mean, just look at that usage report. You know, how many hours yeah. per day am I on my phone? And just think about what if that time was spent reading? I'll tell you what, you're going to get more than five books read if that was the case. That's brilliant advice. And if you're looking through the lens of a father and you're talking about this relationship with social media, that seems very healthy. You've looked at it through a lens that you understand its utility and it's the yeah, ads to use for certain companies to promote. But for individuals, it's often just something that gives them short dopamine releases and it takes up a lot of their time. For your young children growing up, do you think you will guide them or will you try and just limit them from going on social media? Or how will you facilitate their sort of exposure to that world when maybe their peers or friends are going on these platforms? Will you try and guide them to the best principles you can. No, I, I don't think uh, kids and even relatively old adolescents, they shouldn't be anywhere near that. You know, that's, that's like letting your 14 year old into the casino, giving your 14 year old a pack of cigarettes, their brain can't handle it. The evidence is getting clearer and clearer that there's huge negative impacts of these technologies. Uh, there is no upside. I'm not sold on the argument, but all my friends are doing it. That has been the argument for every unsavory activity that teenagers have wanted <laughs> yeah. to do throughout the history of teenagerdom existing as a concept. Like, all right, we'll find different friends. I mean, I'm being a little bit, you know, facetious about that. <laughs> it, it obviously requires more care, but I've written enough about this topic. You know, I, I did an article last fall where I, I talked to sort of four of the leading experts on uh, teenagers and social media, and I come away with a pretty clear answer this is not technology kids should be near. Uh, a 14 year old should not be on TikTok. Uh, a 16 year old should not be monitoring their, their Instagram views. Mm -hmm. uh, YouTube is weird. I, I, YouTube is interesting. I think I, I have a very different relationship with YouTube. I, I think video is 100% fundamental to the future of distributed and democratized media. YouTube is doing it well. Um, I, but I would, so where I would balance that is like, I wouldn't want my fifth, a 15 year old to have a YouTube channel mm. because it gets into some weird dynamics, but I'm way more, I have a way more complicated relationship with YouTube. because I think there's something fundamental and revolutionary happening there in a way that I think TikTok or TikTok or Instagram or Twitter is almost sort of pure exploitation at this point. I mean, for 99% of the people using it, it's just, you are in a matrix style pod with the thing in your brain and energy is being sucked out of you to, to generate 
stock value for like six investors. I, I'm completely <laughs> have very little patience for, you know, the arguments that everyone needs to be on those platforms. Adults can use them with care. Teenagers shouldn't be near them. It's brilliant. Great message. God, we've learned loads from you. And there's so much more we'd like to talk to you about, Bobby. <laughs> we're, uh, we're out of time. We have one more, one more question, Kev, and we're really looking forward to your next book. Everyone that comes on the show, we always ask, what does high performance mean to you? Well, I'm all about ratio, right? So uh, ratio of what you're investing to what you're getting out on the other end. So to me, high performance is you figured out what is important to you in your life and you are able to get a good ratio of your time invested in that, right? So if deep thought and writing is really important to you, that you've built a life in which you're largely doing deep thought and writing, not email, not on the internet. If your it's family life is really important, that the ratio of time to spend with your family to not is very high. If you have some sort of creative endeavor, you're an artist, it's the, the time you spend doing that thing that's most important to you, that ratio of that to other time is really high. That's to me, the high performance state is re-engineering your life to that ratio of time spent on things you care about, the time spent on things you don't is as high as possible. And, and, you know, that's, that's usually typically what I summarize with the, the sort of simple adjectives of deep. That's the deep life. Most of your time spent on things that matter, not too much wasted on all the other distractions that don't. Cal Newport, thanks very much. You've taught us a lot through your books and through the lessons today. So really appreciate you jumping on. If Jesse, the producer is there, if we'll say hello to Jesse as well. And um, we've really enjoyed deep questions, deep life. So people do check out YouTube, do check out Spotify, Apple, where you get your podcast, listens to Cal's stuff and buy his book in 2023 or four whenever it gets out on the shelves as well so Cal thanks very much it was great to speak to you thanks for having me on thank you for listening to today's episode of sleep eat perform repeat a story of high performance this was brought to you by Howora a whole person well-being company founded and run from Dublin Ireland find out more at howoralife.com spelt h-a-u-o-r-a life.com please rate review and share the podcast Some people want it to happen, some wish it would happen, others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.